Well, we are back in Exodus this morning. We took a little break for the Christmas season, and we are rejoining our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, and we find ourselves at commandment number seven this morning. And I'm not sure that there is any other command in the Ten Commandments that's more ridiculed in our culture than this one. Adultery is largely the butt of a sitcom joke. Homosexuality is a right. Sex before marriage is the norm. No-fault divorce and remarriage is assumed. This is the world we live in now, brothers and sisters. Sex has always been a leading vote-getter in the most popular sin contest, but never before have we had so much sexual deviance, and it's been made to look so normal, and God's standards made to look so strange, and more than that, obscene. Our lives are really awash in sexuality. If you live in this cultural moment for any amount of time, which we all do, it's all over television, it's in the movies, it's in our music, it's on the sides of buses, it's in our books. We can hardly avoid it during halftime shows or glossy close-ups on supermarket aisles. Sex is all around us. It's dripping off every beer commercial, and it's two stories high on every billboard that we come across, it seems. And of course, with the uh, ongoing expansion of the internet, it continues to grow. Pornography and sex-related sites now make up 60% of daily web traffic. Of internet users in the United States, 40% visit porn sites at least once a month, and that number increases to 70% when the audience is 18 to 34-year-old males. Among children ages 8 to 16 with internet access, 90% have viewed pornography online and the average age of exposure is 11. The seventh commandment, brothers and sisters, is not just broken in our culture, it's smashed to pieces, and we are reaping the results. Ryan T. Anderson and Robert P. George wrote an op-ed piece for the USA Today uh, newspaper this week, and they noted the following, quote, Ten years ago, we affirmed as a culture that marriage unites a man and a woman. So did 45 states and the federal government. And at the ballot box, citizens had uniformly voted against redefinition, but then in 2012 it all changed. And the Supreme Court began taking cases involving marriage law. Nothing in the Constitution answered the actual question at hand. I guess our framers didn't figure that we had to. What is marriage? The court should have left the issue to the people, but in 2013 it struck down the federal definition of marriage as a male-female union in a 5-4 ruling. But brothers and sisters, same-sex marriage and the legalization of it didn't create any of these problems. Many in America had unwisely already gone along with the erosion of the normalcy of marriage in the wake of the sexual revolution of the 1960s with the rise of cohabitation and non-marital childbearing and no-fault divorce and the hookup culture. It was just the next logical pin to drop. It was no surprise that many would then question the relevance of um, the normalcy of a male-female marriage. So legal re redefinition is really a consequence of the cultural breakdown of marriage. Scott Saul's pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville writes the following about this cultural moment. He says, with pornography, the hookup culture, and non-conventional expressions of sexuality becoming mainstream, classical biblical teaching is becoming less popular in our late modern times. 
Yet if the true relevance of Scripture is that Scripture shows no interest in being relevant, that is, it shows no interest in being adapted, revised, or censored in order to stay current with the ever-shifting times, then the sex question is one with which sincere believers must wrestle. We must remain committed to being countercultural, where the culture and the truth are at odds with one another. This, and this alone, is what will make Christians truly relevant in the culture. End quote. And it's relevant not just because the Bible is true, but it's relevant and it bears out its relevancy in both personal and cultural ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. Personally, married, married faithful couples, according to extensive scientific research, have the greatest sexual fulfillment. Scripture not only tells us this, but studies prove it. A University of Chicago study found that religious people who are married have the best sex lives. They engage in sex more frequently, find it more satisfying and fun, and have the longest-lived sex lives of any particular age group. Culturally speaking, J.D. Unwin, who's an Oxford uh, social anthropologist, has put a lifetime of research into this very area. In a 600-page book called Sex and Culture, he examines the data from 86 different societies and civilizations to see if there's a relationship between sexual freedom and the flourishing of a culture. Here's what he found. Increased sexual constraint, either before or after marriage, always led to the increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture three generations later. Unwin found that when strict premarital chastity was abandoned, many things followed in the wake. Absolute monogamy and faithfulness, belief in God, and rational thinking all disappeared within three generations of the change in sexual freedom. So how are we doing as we enter the second generation since our sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s? Absolute monogamy has declined. Those who actually practice lifelong commitments in marriage have become the minority, with couples born prior to the sexual revolution much more likely to maintain a lifelong commitment to marriage. Belief in God is already rapidly declining, exactly as predicted. And prior to the 1960s, a combination of rationalism and a belief in God was the norm for mainstream culture. But not only has belief in God greatly decreased since the 1960s, but there has been a trend to remove the concept of God from government, the education system, and the public forum altogether. The swiftness with which rational thinking has declined after the 1970s is simply staggering. People can now, think about this, identify themselves as something which flat out contradicts science and rational thinking, and in many cases receive the full support and backing of the government and our educational systems. Not only do people feel they have a right to believe what they want, but any challenge to that belief, even if supported by truth and logic, we're not even talking about the Bible, but just science is unacceptable and offensive and hateful and worthy of criminal action. That's where we are, brothers and sisters. That's where we are. Now, that's discouraging. Pastor Mark, kicking off with all those stats and sending us down into depression already in the sermon. But brothers and sisters, I've got good news. The rest of the sermon is really good news. But we have to face the reality of what sin does 
not only to a culture, but to us personally, because it starts personal and then it just bleeds out into the culture as more and more people engage. Here's the good news. One writer commenting on this, the statistical information I just gave you says the following. Some moral laws will seem to limit human pleasure in the short term. We could say those are God's, God's word. God's word does limit pleasure in the short term. But will prevent great suffering or maximize happiness and fulfillment in the long term. For years, it's been my thinking that God's moral laws are not simply a bunch of arbitrary rules given to restrict mankind's freedom. Instead, they're like operating instructions designed to spare people from suffering while maximizing human flourishing. Unwin's research, the research I just quoted to you, provides strong rational justification for the inference that God's moral laws pertaining to our sexuality, although they may restrain us for some, from some immediate pleasure, protect us from enormous long-term suffering while maximizing our long-term flourishing. Brothers and sisters, God is not opposed to happiness. God is not opposed to your long-term pleasure and your long-term joy. In fact, his law secures it if we will listen to him and heed it. So this morning, we're going to talk about the seventh commandment. This was the commandment that was designed to preserve this very flourishing in the nation of Israel. You shall not commit adultery. So we're going to look, first of all, at the definition of the command. Then we're going to look at the depth of the command. And finally, we'll come to the design of the command. First of all, the definition of the command. Before we arrive at the definition of adultery, let's begin by looking at the various views of sexuality that exist and I'm going to paint with a fairly, fairly broad brush here, but I want to put it, for simplicity's sake, under three headings. This is three broad brushstrokes of the way people view, typically in our culture, sexuality. First of all, sex as God. This is the idea that sex is a right that belongs to individuals to express how they want to express it because they are ultimately autonomous and determinative of what they do. And this is a view that mankind is essentially God, that we are deity. It's as old as the garden. It's what Satan sold us back then, and we're still buying his, buying his offers today. Romans 12.1 says that worship includes what we do with our bodies. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to something. Paul calls us in Romans 12 to offer it to God, but everyone is going to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to something. In 1 Corinthians 10, 7, and 8, Paul makes a connection between sexual sin and idolatry, the very sexual sin and idolatry which we'll confront later in the book of Exodus. Romans 1, 24, and 25 shows that people either worship God and enjoy his creation, or they turn the creation into a God and worship it instead. This is the case in much of our Western culture today. The statistics really paint an ugly picture. Annual pornography revenues are over $90, million, $90 billion worldwide. In the U.S. alone, there is more revenue that's generated for pornography than professional sports and major television networks combined. So that's an evidence that in our, specifically in our Western culture, that sex is almost, if not already, a god. Secondly, sex is gross as gross. Now, admittedly, in our culture, this is not the predominant tendency, but it, but it has been in world history. Although it offended a lot of teenage sensibilities, prior to the Reformation, the church generally regarded sex, even within marriage, as some sort of necessary evil. If you read Tertullian, an early church father, he regarded the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. 
And Ambrose said that married couples ought to be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine was unwilling to admit that intercourse might be was willing to admit that intercourse might be lawful, but taught that sexual passion was always a result of sin. Many priests counseled couples to abstain from sex altogether. The Catholic Church gradually began to exhibit prohibit sex on certain holy days, so that by the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther, the list had grown to 183 days a year. That's a lot of days. But largely, the early church was being influenced by the Greek world of its day and the Platonism, the dualism of body and soul and seeing body as intrinsically evil and spirit and soul as being intrinsically good. But brothers and sisters, the Bible paints a much different picture. Song of Solomon alone pictures a husband and wife as admiring and adventurously enjoying one another, including their naked bodies. Song of Solomon 1-2, Let me kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Song of Solomon 1-4a, Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Song of Solomon 4:10 and 11, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Song of Solomon 5, 2 and 5, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands drip with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Phil Riken commenting, says... It doesn't take much imagination to understand what kind of sexual intimacy the Holy Spirit has in mind. Although God's word is never, ever pornographic, it is unashamedly erotic. If this comes as an embarrassment to some Christians, it's only because we're more prudish than God is. End quote. Finally, we have sex as a gift. Who invented it? Whose idea was it? God's. God invented sex. Sex is not a no-no. It's not a taboo. It's a gift that invites husbands and wives to taste Eden together. Naked and unashamed. Known and embraced. Exposed and not rejected. Paul, also unmarried and celibate, says to married couples, except for short seasons of prayer, able-bodied husbands and wives should give themselves to this frequently. It's a gift. Now, What are the purposes that God has in mind for sexuality? Well, first of all, consummation. Genesis 2.24, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And while there's more to the one flesh idea than just sexuality, it certainly includes that. Secondly, procreation. Having of children. Raising them. God said immediately after bringing the man and the woman together, he said, or creating the man and the woman, he said, let them have dominion over the earth, let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Number three, protection. First Timothy, or First Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5, emphasize, Paul says, that one of the roles post-fall of, of marital sexuality is protection against the wiles of the devil and Satan himself. And finally, number four, expression. No less than three times the Song of Solomon uses love as a figure of speech for sexual union. Song of Solomon 2, 7, 3, 5, 8, 4. 
Sex is an expression of marital love. It is intended for pleasure. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 stress this as well. So what does it mean then? We've, now that we've painted with a broad brushstroke of the various views of sex as God, gross, or gift, let's think about it in terms of the command here that Paul, or God speaks through Moses, to, to the people of Israel on the mountain. What does it mean to commit adultery? Well, the simplest answer is that adultery is marital infidelity. This command is designed to protect the marriage relationship that God instituted in creation. In fact, the author to the writer of the book of Hebrews emphasizes the value and honorability of the marriage relationship in Hebrews 13.4 when he instructs that the marriage bed is to be kept honorable. So the command to not commit adultery strictly forbids any married individual from having sex with anyone other than their spouse. And this is emphasized over and over again in the New Testament as well. Matthew 15, 19, Matthew 19, 18, Luke 18, 20, Romans 2, 22, Romans 13, 9, James 2, 11, and 2 Peter 2, 14 all speak of the command not to commit adultery. So that is the definition of the command put in a broader context. Point number two, the depth of the command. Lest we think that the command to not commit adultery is only limited to marital infidelity, we need to understand that actually the Bible applies that very command in a broad way. This command is not only designed to condemn adultery, but it touches on all forms of sexual immorality. We know this for a couple of reasons that I'm going to point you to now. We know this, first of all, because the Mosaic Law Code explains this command. When it explains it, it applies it in various ways that are not just limited to adultery. In fact, it covers all kinds of sexual malpractice including, but not limited to, the following five. Homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman is an abomination. Incest. Leviticus 18.6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Prostitution. Deuteronomy 22.21, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Bestiality, Exodus twenty-two nineteen. whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Fornication, which would include premarital sex and cohabitation, Exodus twenty-two sixteen. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. So obviously in the Mosaic Code, especially chapters 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus, where the Ten Commandments are fleshed out in more concrete ways, the command to not commit adultery is applied broadly to all sorts of areas of sexual practice. And of course, the New Testament parallel to this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the way he deals with the command not to commit adultery. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, Jesus is obviously talking to religious leaders and people who are listening in, and where would they have heard that before? Well, they would have heard it in the Ten Words, in the the Law of Moses. But notice, Jesus doesn't just limit the command to not commit adultery to the physical act of marital infidelity. Rather, he goes on in verse 28 to say the following. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Like many of the Ten Commandments, Jesus does this. What he's doing is not reinterpreting it. It's not that this wasn't included in God's command to the people of Israel. We already saw that it was. There were other forms of sexual immorality that were addressed. But the Pharisees had come along and either made the law code very, very rigid in its application, or in some cases, very, very broad to the point where they were adding extra laws to it. And Jesus was having to break the barnacles off the boat, so to speak, to get it back to the core. But in this case, this was a reduction of the command. The Pharisees would go around and say, well, as long as you haven't committed physical adultery, you haven't, committed, you haven't broken this command. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That was not the intention. The intention was to preserve a pure heart. The intention was to preserve lust from even coming up in the heart. And he says, we're to take that deadly seriously. Not just the deadly seriousness of, oh, I hope I don't commit adultery, but the lustful intentions of my heart. I am to deal with with serious spiritual sword bearing. I am to take the word of God and cut that off and get that out of my life. And when it rears back up again, I chop its head off again. I'm not playing games with the lust that resides in my heart. Are you? Jesus would say, don't play games with it. Now, of course, he's not telling you in this command to literally go about severing parts of your body off. If you cut the right hand off, it's not going to do any good. you got the left hand. If you gouge the right eye out, it's not going to do any good. you got the left eye. So the point is, take the battle that seriously. Sexual sin is a matter of life and death, or shall I say heaven and hell. Say, Pastor Mark, are you preaching works? Jesus seems to say here that if we don't fight sexual sin, we're going to hell. That's exactly right. You know why? Because Christians fight. That's how you know who Christians are. It's not a matter of whether or not fighting sexual sin is earning salvation. It's that fighting sexual sin proves you've been saved. Because that's what saved people do. Saved people repent of sin. They're not perfect, but when they do sin, they turn. That's how you know a saved person. A saved person's not a perfect person. A saved per- person's not a sinless person. A saved person commits sexual sin, but you know what? A saved person, when they commit sexual sin, they turn from sexual sin. And then they keep turning, and they keep turning. And though they fall seven times, they rise again. They are not going to let it win. They will die trying, fighting. That's the mark of a Christian. Not perfection, direction. Fight, not flight, not giving in but fighting. So Jesus says that to lust is to look at a man or a woman and to imagine the sexual possibilities. That's what lust is. Whenever we are looking at someone in a way that leads to arousal as an object to satisfy our sexual desire, then we are looking with lustful intent. And Jesus interprets the law here not merely as a prohibition against the physical act of adultery, but shows it to be a command that addresses the inward lust of our hearts. The physical act, after all, brothers and sisters, as we know, is just the outworking of a twisted and tainted spiritual condition in our hearts. It starts there. The body may be committing the act, but it was the heart that gave it birth. This would obviously include inappropriate flirting for a husband or wife to seek primary emotional support from another man or woman who is not their spouse, sexual violence 
rape, pornography, any such things, Jesus would address here as looking with lustful intent or behaving with lustful intent. So, we come now, thirdly, to the design of the command. We've looked at the definition and the depth that Jesus gives to it. Now let's talk about the design. I think this is important. When we come to the commands of God, we don't just need to say, well, God commands it, we obey it, that's the end of the situation. I mean, that's an honorable attitude to have because we want to listen to God and receive his word and not push back. No parent wants to answer why questions all the time when they're calling for obedience, right? I mean, how many parents like that, right? Well, go clean your room, why? Because no, I said so. So God's that way too, not with the sinful tendencies that we have, but, but he says it and he expects us to get it, okay? But that doesn't mean it's inappropriate to ask. In fact, God himself supplies motivation after motivation, why after why. He's eager to entertain our whys. And so, in this third point, I want to talk about his design in this command, why it's good. Why is this a good idea? Why is this a good command? Why is adultery in all its various forms forbidden? Why is Scripture seemingly so liberating about sex inside heterosexual marriage and so limiting for every other setting? Why does God talk like that? For four reasons, at least. I'm going to give those to you one at a time. First of all, because sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. Brothers and sisters, God came up with it, and he came up with the experience of it and all the feelings that go with it. God doesn't forbid adultery because sex is bad. God forbids adultery because sex is designed to be such a powerful force for good. That's why. Sex is like super glue. When used properly, it seals the bonds of a marriage. It's what Tim Keller calls covenant cement that helps to hold the marriage securely together. But whenever sex is divorced from that context, it loses its true purpose and therefore its highest joy. Oh yeah, it feels good in the moment, but it's gravel in the stomach afterward. Because there's no other place to experience nakedness and unashamedness. You can experience nakedness in other ways, but not without shame. That's going with it. And that's the gravel that immorality leaves in its wake. It's because sex is the most delightful and the most dangerous of all human capacities that God puts it in this context. It's a lot like a fire. It can warm, comfort, and it can purify, but if it's not handled with care, it will burn you, infect you, scar you, and destroy you. Whenever people try to isolate the pleasures of sex from the God-appointed context of sex, there's always harm behind it, both for the person and for others. Maybe not right away, but in the end. It sows seeds of death. So that's the first reason, because sex is powerful. God knew it. He's made it that way. He wanted an earth filled. He wanted a marriage that was rich. And so he gave this great gift to married couples. But then he says, but be careful. It's a powerful gift. Number two, sex is relational. It's designed to foster mutual self-giving and serve as a means of avoiding temptation. Adultery wrongly intrudes another person into that one flesh relationship. Adultery means that three people are invoked 
in the one flesh relationship, which is contrary to God's intentions for unity and exclusivity. Adultery destroys trust within the marriage, and if trust is destroyed within the marriage, all the other aspects of the relationship become much more difficult, which is why God permits divorce in such cases. Number three, sex is spiritual. Another reason God forbids adultery is because there's a close connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. Would you take your Bible and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is addressing sexual sin in the Corinthian church. And he connects it in 1 Corinthians 6 to spirituality, which is not something we typically think a lot about. At least I don't. But Paul is wanting to show us here that sex is an intentionally spiritual thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexuality, sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, he says, the body's for God. Our bodies are God's. They belong to God. So sex has a spiritual component. And this is what he's going to say. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, Paul is talking about the spiritual connections to the way we engage in sexuality. It's never just a person-to-person reality. There's always a spiritual dimension that's going on as well. For the Christian, every act of sexual immorality is a kind of spiritual desecration. Since our bodies belong to Christ, to use them in ways that he is forbidden is to sin against him. Sexual sin also grieves and dishonors the Holy Spirit. We see that in the latter part of the chapter, beginning at verse 18. Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies were purchased by Christ on the cross, and they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this means that whatever we do with our bodies is directly related to our fellowship with God. In addition to damaging ourselves and others, committing adultery dishonors the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In addition, marriage is a reflection of the union between Christ and the church, and adultery lies about Christ's faithfulness to his bride. And that's one of the deepest consequences of adultery, is that it lies about what marriage is supposed to portray. Christ is not unfaithful to us. We ought not to be faithful to our spouse either. Finally, number four, sex is consequential. In the movies, when on TV shows, Hollywood would have us believe that sex has no consequences whatsoever. There's no such thing as a sexual consequence. It's just all marvelous and all exciting all the time. But in the real world, that's just not true. And you know it's not true. Unmarried passion leaves a trail of burned-out lovers broken hearts, nasty diseases, unwanted pregnancies, and a damaged capacity to ever enjoy the permanent passion of marriage. That's the wake. And that's not nice. It's not pretty. I don't want that for anybody. And you don't want that for those you love either. Lust has many, many unhappy consequences. It's expensive. 
it will cost a man his money and maybe even his life, according to Proverbs 6, 25 and 26. It certainly will. It, it could have cost a man his life in the Old Testament, as it was punishable by death, but it'll certainly cost a man his money as he gives up 50% in a divorce. Or a woman, for that matter. It's like playing with fire, as we've already talked about. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man take fiery coals into his lap and not be burned? No. It leads us into shame and disgrace, according to Proverbs 6, 28 and 33. But worst of all, worst of all, is that unrepented of sexual sin brings us under the wrath of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Period. So it's not that those sins can't be committed. It's that those sins cannot be practiced in an ongoing, unrepented way and a person be assured that they're going to heaven. So if anyone here this morning who is playing with fire, playing with sexual sin, playing with a, another person, playing with the internet, playing with something else, please take it seriously. Because it is serious. It's not something to be played with. You should read a verse like this and say, if I continue in unrepentant practice of this, I am not going to heaven. That's what Paul intended the Corinthians to feel. And that should lead us to repentance. It should not lead us to conclude that we're not a Christian. It should lead you to conclude that you need to repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ. So let me conclude with a few words of application. Three, in fact, as we think about this. This, is, this, this issue hits all of us in different ways. Some of us are striving for faithfulness and, we, and, and, we're, and we're walking in integrity and we may struggle and we're, our consciences are sensitive to lust or something like that and therefore we may be quick to condemnation and we may throw, our, throw, throw it all, well, I'm probably not a Christian, I struggle. That's not what we're talking about here. Or some of you maybe here this morning are just coasting, indifferent. You claim that you can be in fellowship with Christ and yet live how you want and you need to be warned. You need to be warned that that's not the case. But I, for most of us in this room and in our congregation, I feel like that we need three words generally regarding this. First of all, a word of hope. Run to Jesus. Jesus loves to forgive sexual sin. Did you know that? He is eager to forgive sexual sin. He did in John 8 when the woman caught in adultery, when the Pharisees thought that he wouldn't be eager to condemn sexual, or forgive sexual sin. He's going to condemn her. See, we're going to test to see if this guy's really a prophet of God. Let's bring an adulteress to him and see what he does with her. And what did he do with her? He said to them, any of you who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And nobody did. And then she comes to him and he says, anybody condemn you? She said, no. He said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. His grace meets her with forgiveness, no condemnation, but it also says, listen, you leave your life of sin. You don't do this anymore. Grace changes us. An encounter with the loving forgiveness of Jesus transforms people. The Corinthians knew this. Did you see that right on the heels of this warning 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, what's the very next verse? This, this threat, this warning of, listen, if you practice sexual sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the very next verse say? Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. Such were your pastors. Such were your deacons. Some of them. It says, such were some of you. Who are, this, who, who are the some of you? That's the church. That's the Corinthian church. He says, you were sexually immoral. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You were men and women who practiced homosexuality. You were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunkards. You were revilers. You were swindlers. Such were some of you. But here's the key word. Were. Were were, not are, were. They had made a decisive break with that. They had committed to the rest of their lives to fight those tendencies by the power of the Holy Spirit. They may still reside within them, as all of us do. We have remaining struggles with sin, but our commitment is to not live in sin, even though sin might live in us and does live in us. That's the difference. Sin lives in us, but we don't live in sin. Such were some of you. The church is made up of forgiven sexual sinners. Not everybody in every single equal way. That's why he says such were some of you. Not everybody had to fall into gross sexual immorality to be forgiven, but a percentage of the Corinthian congregation was that group. And I would say a percentage of Heritage Baptist Church is that group. And we praise God that such were some of us. Why? Not because the sin was great and we're thankful for it, we're proud and we boast in it, but what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Just as you were that, now you're this. You're cleansed. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's who you are. You are not your sin. You are cleansed. You are washed. You're sanctified you're justified. You're set apart to God. You're forgiven. You're counted righteous by him. You have been cleansed of your sin. Praise God that he gives grace to sinners who repent of their lust and come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we do, he cleanses us and washes us freely. We're not put on trial. As one of our brothers, our brother Hugo said, and encouraging the men, uh, Corey, yesterday said, we get a mulligan. We get do-overs in Christ. Praise God that we get do-overs in Christ. So that's the first one, run to Jesus. Secondly, rely on the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we can't, we can't maintain purity apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit. We can't do any of God's commands without the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8, to Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There it is. There's the hope. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. So we are able, by the power of the Spirit, to control our body. We are able to possess it in holiness and honor. We are able to abstain from passion of lust like the Gentiles. We are able to not transgress. We are able to live in purity and holiness because we have the Holy Spirit given to us. Rely on the Spirit 
As a, as a branch abides in the vine, so we must abide in Christ if we would have ongoing holiness. Finally, resist sin. I put that third because those first two are incredibly important. Knowing that you are washed, knowing that that's what you were, knowing that you're justified, knowing that you're cleansed, and knowing that you have the Holy Spirit is immensely foundational to ever resisting sin. In fact, that's what you need to say when those impulses come. When those sinful impulses come, you say, that's not me. That's not me. That's remaining sin. I am washed. I am justified. I am sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm new. I'm forgiven. I have the Holy Spirit. Yes, those desires are still part of my fallen condition, but that's not who I am. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. Yes, those are proceeding from remaining sin in me, but I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to God. I'm made righteous in Him. So those resources, those gospel resources have to be in place. John Piper um, gives a helpful acronym, which I'll conclude with, um, called ANTHEM. He, he calls it Strategies for Fighting Lust, and he puts it in the acronym of ANTHEM, and I want to conclude with these practical strategies for resisting sin that come from Pastor John Piper. First of all, A in ANTHEM stands for is to avoid. Avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us to flee unrighteousness and worldly passions. Romans 13.14, Paul says to make no provision for the flesh. We're not to give the flesh opportunities. So avoiding is a big part of resisting. Two, the end. Say no. If you find yourself having desires of lust, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. 1 Peter 4.7 says resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is stiff arm him. Stiff arm him right away. T, turn the mind forcefully toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. Think on Jesus. H, hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. E, enjoy a superior satisfaction. Psalm 1611 reminds us that in God's presence is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures are at his right hand. And then M, move into some useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 encourages us to redeem the time, to recognize that the days are evil, to not walk idly, but rather to redeem the time. And then 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight calls us to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. That includes your parenting. That includes your job. That includes your fellowship with your brothers and sisters. We're abounding in work for the Lord. And a, and, a, and a heart and a life that is abounding in the work of the Lord will have less room for sin and temptations to idleness that lead to sin. So be moving, be useful, be engaging, and may God help us. So let's be reminded in conclusion here that where God speaks, that though the law comes and speaks a a strong word against us, we are not left to ourselves. We have a Savior who is pure and undefiled, separate from sinners, who was an unmarried man who walked in absolute purity, never had sex a day in his life, and he did it for us. He walked the path of purity and resistance to lust. Think of the times. It was a temptation. Had a lot of women around him. A lot. And never once did a lustful desire rise in his heart. When he's dealing with prostitutes, when he's dealing with all kinds of 
people imagine he does a great thing for a woman and she wants to show him great affection and she just grabs a hold of him and hugs him for a long period of time. There was no sexual arousal there because he's our savior. He lived consistent with the word of God so that he could be our savior. And then rise from the dead, victorious for our sin, send the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we'd be made new and able to have power to walk in newness of life. Praise his name that we're not left to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the reminders in it of not just your law, but your gospel. We pray for those of us in this room who have yet to come to Christ, who have yet to recognize their need for a Savior. May your law presented in commandment number seven do just that. Recognize that apart from Jesus, they are under the wrath of God, not just for sexual sin, but for living a life independent of their creator not relying on him, not depending on him, not looking to him, not seeking forgiveness from him. May you do that. For those of us who are in the midst of the struggle, for most of us who are battling and in the fight with sin every day, we thank you for the provision of the cross, for the provision of the resurrection and empty tomb, for the provision of the Holy Spirit, and for the provision of the word of God that is the sword of the spirit that enables us to wield in our fight against the devil. Help us to resist him. Help us to resist our culture with its siren songs calling us to, 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 to take the bait. May we hear it. May we chain ourselves to the mast of the cross and have no ears for such calls because our Savior is altogether lovely and altogether worthy. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, brothers and sisters.